Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor Is In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse. Today's episode is part of our special series, What Plants Pray From Technology, where I'm interviewing the technology providers, developers, and building designers about the unique technological needs for growing crops indoors and in greenhouses. Today, we're putting a spotlight on greenhouse technology. I'm interviewing not just one, but two experts in the field of greenhouse environmental management. Jim Reardon and Thad Humphrey are the president and lead mechanical engineer for Biotherm, a company that supplies environmental management technology to the greenhouse industry. Together, they have a combined 53 years of experience helping greenhouse growers optimize their environments. Many of you listening may be familiar with their Radiant Heating line of products, which I see in a lot of greenhouses around the country. And it's certainly what first introduced me to Biotherm. You can often find Jim and Thad at trade shows and conferences showcasing their product lines and talking greenhouse tech like not many others can. They're also active with the National Greenhouse Manufacturers Association, helping to elevate the greenhouse industry and technology to the next level. Jim and Thad, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to geek out over greenhouses and environmental management with you guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So let's just start with a brief introduction. Um, uh, How did each of you get interested in controlled environment, agriculture, and greenhouses. And Jim, let's start with you, because I think you've been in the industry a little bit longer. Yeah, for me, you know, the the, the path to where I'm at is not very circuitous. It's literally the only job I've ever had. Um, wow. Biotherm was started uh, across the street from where I grew up in a garage in Petaluma, California in 1980. Um, I was uh, the first employee of this company when it when I was 17. Um, ended up buying the company in 1989. It sounds like ancient history, but it's gone by like a flash. Um, and so, yeah, ever since then, I've endeavored to try to help people optimize their environments and selling greenhouse solutions. And uh, it's been a real fun career. And, wow. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's full of new challenges all the time. I'm amazed how new greenhouses always are. Is there a particular reason why Petaluma, California? And and can you describe for our listeners where that is exactly? Yeah, so Petaluma is uh, in Sonoma County. We're about uh, 40 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge on Highway 101. And really, it just happened to be where my family's been from for several generations. And um, the company, when Biotherm started way in ancient history in 1980, we started as an agricultural solar company. And we uh, were doing uh, solar collectors um, uh, for, and we focused on agriculture and we didn't really know what kind of ag, it just sounded good at the time. Um, and we started doing things like unglazed solar collectors for various applications. One of which was a turkey farm where they needed to have heating for their, their brooders. Instead of using traditional gas fire, they wanted to do a low grade temperature thing. So we set up this solar array outside and then we used the same exact tubing that ended up being biotherm microclimate tubing. Um, but it was a, a high performance synthetic rubber that we deployed above all these baby turkeys. And unfortunately we killed something like 30,000 turkeys 
and that oh, industry no. didn't work out. We thought we'd go with a lot smarter part of production, which is plants. And uh, one of the original founders of the company uh, was driving through Half Moon Bay, California, and dropped off some brochures about our innovative uh, solar panel system and, and heat transfer method. And it was a Bay City Flower Company, which is uh, it was a giant operation. It's unfortunately defunct now, uh, but it is where we first did our bottom heat system. And we uh, did root zone heating for them in a little ton, like 20 by 96 uh, Quonset house. Uh, it was all because they got a brochure and they called and said, hey, we'd like to try your greenhouse heating system. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, OK, we've never Okay. We'll <laughs> we have that. We have that, you know. And you know, so yeah, that's that's where it all kind of started. We uh it was a kind of an energy crisis time. There was a lot of interest in alternative energies. There was a lot of government financing available. It's kind of the Reagan years in California. That kind of caught fire once we did that. They said that worked so well that we'd like to try an acre, another, and all of a sudden we had a national company on our hands and just essentially doing one purpose root zone heating. That was essentially all that we did at first. That's amazing. What good timing you had. So you you were solar before solar was cool. Basically. Yeah, correct. All right. So Thad, how did you find Biotherm? It's a little bit more roundabout path than gyms. I started out uh, in Tucson, Arizona. I was in mechanical engineering school at the University of Arizona. And uh I decided to get into mining engineering at first, which of course is a big thing in the Southwest portion of the nation. And I was really interested in that. I had a great time doing it. Uh, as you know, mine sites are pretty dirty. And they get pretty aggressive, but uh, it was always really intriguing to me because it covered, you know, providing metals to pretty much every industry. So I liked that part of it. Uh, I ended up uh, giving water treatment and wastewater treatment uh, a little bit of attention after that, after uh, being subjected to all the industrial sites I visited and stuck with that for a little while. Again, it's kind of playing into, you know, being able to do a higher function for a large group of people, society. Uh, that was really interesting to me. Uh, and then I decided to take a chance and uh, apply that towards greenhouses and uh, hopped into this industry. And let me tell you, it's, uh, they're great site visits compared to everything else that I had to do. I bet. Uh, they, <laughs> they smell great. There's a, a lot of oxygen in the air and the sites are always beautiful. So I've always uh, kind of tied back the work I did to kind of help the greater good. And it's been fun working in the uh, CEA industry and now watching it kind of uh, blow up food wise is great. I mean, coming from in, you know, maybe sort of industrial, if I can mm -hmm. call it industrial engineering and moving into agricultural engineering, is there anything that you see that are similar or is it just really different? What have you learned as a mechanical engineer going from, you know, these inert substances and maybe they weren't all inert um, to plants that are living systems? I mean, it, it they're they're wildly different and they're similar at the same time the the similarity is they're both kind of building uh each produces kind of a building block to something that we all uh use on a daily basis when it comes to mining it's it's uh creating metals to use towards making products when it's the cea industry it's you're making food you're making medicine you're bringing flowers into the world so it's 
And those are all things that you can build off of to make other things. With. So the interesting thing is greenhouses uh, also require a lot of, you know, if, if you're really getting into it, you can, you can strip back the controls and simplify things as much as you want. But really at the end of the day, whether it's manual or automated, somebody is making a lot of important decisions uh, which constantly change in greenhouse world due to the weather. So the the main difference between those two industries I see is the mining industry can get extremely automation driven. Uh, the processes and control systems behind everything are incredibly important. Greenhouses try to achieve that same level of control to battle mother nature but don't always have the same uh, price point behind them. So you have to get clever to economically mm. do what the other industry is trying to achieve and still make it a viable product. So it's, yeah, that's tricky in its own right. And it's also what the challenge is what makes it fun. And, and plus the uniformity issues, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, life finds a way to do what it wants to do. <laughs> it's right, hard to right. sort of, yeah. Make it do exactly what you want to do all the time. Uh, so with that, how what do you guys see as the major benefits of growing in a greenhouse? A lot of the people I interview are indoor growers or serve the indoor growing industry, growing market. Um, what do you guys see as the major advantage to growing in a greenhouse? One simple thing, the big light bulb in the sky, natural yep. light, um, you know, being able to leverage a building uh, that admits light that is optimized for plant use we feel is the right course forward for for plant production um you know where our industry has struggled is and and admittedly especially in the cannabis world was flat-footed when the first legalizations came and people were looking at doing like light deprivation excuse me i think our industry took it as you know it's just another crop there's it's it's easy you know we just vent it cool it and all that but i think now the industry is is um matured enough to where you can create the appropriate environment in a greenhouse but it is a, it's a lot more of a challenge to to grow in a, a light admitting structure that's not as tight as a tilt-up type building or you know a warehouse but uh i believe the economies are there and it's it's kind of proving itself out that it, it seems to me that you know that's that's going to be the way forward for everybody to be more sustainable so what do you I, think then yeah go ahead i, I think uh you know, to add to that, you know, greenhouses are the middle ground between growing outdoors and growing indoors. And the key benefit to that's what Jim was just talking about. You get to leverage all the benefits of outdoors when it's usable, which is uh, depending on uh, where you're at, it, it's variable. And that, you know, it gives you your more economical solution to approach things rather than going off completely indoor where you're uh, literally paying for uh, every aspect of the plant's life uh, um, when an outdoor has its it benefits but it there's a lot you have to battle uh, mother nature outdoor when you're fully growing outdoors so yeah that middle ground is really why i see it has its greatest strength i had a friend in the industry make the statement that you take a person who cultivates outdoor and put them in a greenhouse and they go, oh, look at all the control I have. It's amazing. And you take someone who's used to growing indoor and you put them in a greenhouse like, oh my God, I have no control. This is completely different. So, you know, it's a matter of, uh, you know, perspective, I think. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, Jim, you, you've been in this industry for over 40 years. Did it surprise you or were you kind of expecting this, this movement, maybe pun intended, to, to grow plants indoors in a more controlled environment than a greenhouse yeah, for for years it seemed like you know at, at some point we'd be it was always just around the corner when food production. I mean, flowers, mm -hmm. uh, floral plants, of course, you know, kind of the natural thing like poinsettias. You're not going to grow a potted, you know, petunia. And most of our legacy has been ornamental floriculture up until five six years ago when cannabis kind of hit us and fell on us. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a surprise to me finally that we're really seeing the upswell of close to market food production in greenhouses. And I'm really happy to see it. You know, we go to Holland all the time for research trips and buying trips and all that, you know, and it's just the way it is there because they're in North Sea environment. So, you know, finally seeing it take root here and seeing the economies uh, work out where it's competitive, especially on leafy greens with outdoor production. And there's so much more control, uh, so much more food safety in place. I'm just, you know, I'm really happy to see the evolution of it because, uh, it's, you know, uh, I, I firmly believe it's the way the world has to go. We have a client that talks about uh, like 3000 mile lettuce has to go away. You know, if you're if you're in Boston and you're buying lettuce, you know, you don't really want it trucked all the way from Yuma or Salinas. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's finally hit. We used to have a policy of biotherm. If someone calls, um, you know, up until maybe five, six years ago and says, I'm going to build 10 acres of greenhouse. And I'm going to feed the world. Uh, the first thing is like, don't give that guy any credit. And number two, don't spend too much time on the proposal because it probably will never happen. And they rarely did happen, except wow. in the case of, you know, the the big upswell down in Arizona with, the, you know, the those greenhouses. But that was really yeah. the that was that was really a big wave. You know, you know, all the people that were part of that. Yep. Yep. I mean, are there locations um, I mean, you say, you know, if, if you're a really big, you know, multi-acre vegetable greenhouse, probably they don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, we're not going to give them too much time, um, but we're going to, you know, entertain them for a little while and maybe it'll actually happen. But now, right, like that we're, we're seeing success in, in that arena. Is there also, I mean, in terms of location, um, do you see locations that are really not a good idea to grow green or to build a greenhouse and other locations where it's a no brainer? Yes, they should be using greenhouses. How, how do you kind of vet potential customers based on location and what they're trying to achieve? Or does that ever come up? It comes up, uh, you know, I, I see us as tool makers and we believe that a light admitting structure like a greenhouse can be built pretty much anywhere on the planet and supplemented with lighting and shading. And, um, you know, if you're in a in Alaska or something where you wow, is a greenhouse really the right way to go? But I think a greenhouse that's properly insulated with the right glazings on it can be appropriate for, for those climates. So, yeah, I, I think we uh, I think we're bullish about greenhouses can pretty much work anywhere. It just comes down to the proper engineering. Um, yeah, you're going to build a different structure in uh, Southern California or Arizona than you would build in a high snow struck, high snow area, uh, you know, or someplace that gets crazy cold or crazy hot. But, um, you know, even in the Middle East and uh, places like that, I think that there's technologies now that you can throw at a greenhouse to make it work pretty much anywhere on the planet. Yeah. Thad, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, would you agree? 
Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean there's a lot of greenhouses in Canada. That's pretty cold. Yep. <laughs> With not a lot of daylighting year round. Um, and they seem to be pretty successful. They have figured out, right, the um the most beneficial or efficient way to uh to operate a greenhouse to grow vegetables year round. So yeah, it can absolutely be done. And even like you were saying in the Middle East, um, there's some new creative technologies and ideas for how to design a greenhouse and the mechanical systems or the environmental control systems uh, to manage heat and humidity there as well. And personally, I hope that greenhouse is right, can, can be used everywhere because I do want to be, I mean, that was where I first got interest in controlled environment agriculture was working on a mushroom farm where we were actually growing shiitake and oyster mushrooms in a greenhouse was really hard to do. Uh, but uh, realizing like, Hey, greenhouses could feed the world. Like we could, you know, we could control the environment, plot these anywhere all over the world and be able to not just grow mushrooms, but grow other food crops. So I am a believer, but you made a very important um, comment, which is that, that assumes that you don't have the same greenhouse structure or technology in California that you do in Canada or in Saudi Arabia. They all require different designs and different plans. And unfortunately, I don't always see big distinctions between what is proposed for those different types of climates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that a lot. We see, you know, for the greenhouse industry and the technologists in it, Mecca is kind of Holland, you know, that's where, you know, you see a lot of the innovation and a lot of the, but we also see a lot of times when people try to deploy a greenhouse using what worked in the North Sea environment, not necessarily being appropriate for Las Vegas, for instance, or other places. Right. So, you know, I think, I think that it's, uh, it's gotta be, they all have to be looked at one by one by one, uh, a place that's, you know, like in the Middle East, um, you know, we would like to see more development of things to keep the heat out of the greenhouse because we're doing so much cooling and dehumidification. Yep. And it's amazing to me that the technology of over-the-top screening, for instance, for greenhouses hasn't become much more prevalent. And, you know, I think it's a structural challenge for the greenhouse manufacturers, but I think that that's kind of the kind of the holy grail if you really want to do, you know, greenhouse tech in places that get a tremendous amount of solar uh, that's going to be one of the things that's going to, you know, make that have to work. And those systems need to, you know, they're outside in the environment and the wind, et, et cetera. But there's got to be, you know, it's the old, you know, we can put a man on the moon, but can we not shade the top of the greenhouse and get the heat before <laughs> it goes into the structure type thing? You know, we can oh, do this. We can do this. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, let's step back for a second. Can you guys... I don't know that every, all of my listeners have been in a greenhouse. You know, a lot of them might come from indoor uh, agriculture. And like you said, you know, going from indoor to a greenhouse, oh my God, there's no control anymore. Can you just describe what a greenhouse is? It's a big question, right? Um, I, I'm like, how would I answer this question? What a greenhouse is and what kind of systems we would see in this greenhouse. And really I'm thinking heating and cooling. I would say irrigation is, you know, maso menos about the same for indoor and greenhouse. Of course, there's probably, there's variations here and there, but describe, describe what we'll see in a greenhouse. Yeah. So generally a frame structure that has a glazing that admits light 
They are probably one of the most dynamic edifices man has ever created because they're so transient based on what's going on uh, around them. Uh, you know, weather wise, they can be bloody hot and then a cloud comes over and all of a sudden you're, you're pulling down vents. They don't have any insulative value per se. There's some glazing technology coming along that'll, that'll mitigate some of that, but they, they, they gain and lose heat in a tremendous way. It's, you know, it's a solar collector box basically, or it's just a thing that loses heat in a second. So, you know, they're, they're, people probably drive by them on the freeways like, ah, it's a simple agriculture structure, but they're probably some of the most active uh, buildings. And that's why we have such a cool, narrow specialty is because um, unlike most building conditioning engineering companies that, uh, you know, deploy air conditioning and heating and those techs, our occupants can't get up and move around, you know. So not only is it facility that's very, very articulated to either ventilate or you know, add light, uh, draw curtains so that it can reduce uh, solar gain or heat loss. It is a situation that you've got to, you know, be able to be reactive very, very quickly to it. So is it possible to be proactive in a greenhouse or are you always in a reactive mode? With the right control system and being able to anticipate things, you can be proactive. And there's a lot of software partners out there building weather stations and things that integrate with the algorithms and the software to create uh, anticipation. There's uh, for sure. But, you know, having quick systems that can respond to what's going on outside is is a real key thing. But pretty much anything you can grow uh, inside a building or inside a, a closed building, you can do in a greenhouse. Thad, is there anything you want to add? I mean, that covered the basics, but I, I think if I was to add a little bit more, you know, it, the, the from the outside, it may look like a light emitting structure that's got some uh, basic framework to it. But really, the key to all the decisions that are made uh, by the greenhouse uh, manufacturers and growers are, are things to give them control to leverage how to use outside when it's good and and then clamp down and do everything yourself when it's not. So all the vents and the locations are strategically picked uh, to for, for airflow for the plants, uh, whether it's uh, closed or open. Uh, the glazings are picked to be strategic about insulation as well as lighting. And the structures picked to be strategic about what kind of loading you're going to get environmentally in that area. So... It's all about leveraging what's outdoors uh, as much as we possible. We feel like greenhouses are almost like a living thing. You know, they're they're kind of like a, a lung. You know, they're a, a, a device that, you know, is as partnered as it can with the outside environment of, as any edifice ever could be by, you know, leveraging what's going on outside as much as possible from light coming in. And, and if the, you know, the, the conditions are tempered enough to share the outside environment with the plants inside, or to you know modulate the way the structure works, so that where like that said, where you might you know shelter and close down and shade or modify the environment with mechanical systems. Um, but you know it's it's the most brutal and frustrating thing, but it's also the most you know appropriate thing I think for for growing plants. 
at, at the end of the day, you know, you're offsetting all of the uh, energy costs and effort uh, by using uh, what Mother Nature's already providing you instead mm -hmm. of doing it 100%. Curious about an example, you know, like what would be the difference uh, between a greenhouse we might see in California where we have a pretty temperate climate, it's sunny, right, a lot of the time, um, versus, I don't know, pick your other climate. Is it north? Is it hot and humid? Like, what are what are some of the key differences you would expect to see in the design um, or the equipment selected um, to manage that greenhouse? Yeah, part of it's crop driven, of course. Uh, you know, if you're if you're growing petunias in California, you probably have uh, systems that are much lighter in terms of being able to modify the environment because you don't have much heat loss and you don't have uh, crazy humidities. But if you move that same place to, you know, uh, upstate New York or someplace, you're going to have a much more a structure that's heavier so it can handle snow loads. You'll have a system in place to be able to melt snow. Um, you're going to have a system that, you know, probably has more redundancy built in for those times. If you have a very cold snap and you're saving your crop, you have to have maybe multiple heat sources. You know, your heat loss in California probably is in the realm of 40 to 50 some BTUs a square foot. And that other, you know, in uh, northern climates, you're talking, you know, 100 BTUs. So you've got a more upgraded system there. If you're growing cannabis and you're blessed to be in some place like uh, Temecula, California or something, you don't need a whole lot because you've got friend friendly conditions, mostly outside. But if you want to flower cannabis in Apopka, Florida or central Pennsylvania or someplace in New Jersey where the summertime, you know, humidities are crazy, you're going to have to have a system that... The best system probably is something that in the shoulder months, you can utilize the outside conditions, but you're probably going to be in a situation where you have to invest in equipment where you can uh, close down when the, the it's it's hostile outside and, uh, you know, really mechanically probably condition the environment inside and dehumidify and cool to, you know, keep that high value crop safe in those those periods of time. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, uh, probably a lot more investment for places that have cold winter, high humidity summers than there would be in the more temperate regions. Um, but they're building them because they're close to market. Right. And do you think those are still more, um, economical than just out, you know, outfitting an, an old warehouse and conditioning it and, and lighting it? I, I believe so because there are times throughout uh, the year in even the most aggressive climates where there's uh, an opportunity to take advantage of the outside uh, conditions to modify the inside and the the you know the natural light part is is a huge component of of you know growing plants uh, economically I believe so you know if you've got if you've got sunlight I think you should use it you know you guys started as a heating company <laughs> well a solar company then heating uh, low grade heating. Oh, yeah. Solar was about five minutes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, I've noticed over the years, um, and I think maybe this, what this coincided with the cannabis industry, uh, growing, uh, is you, you're bringing on mechanical cooling and dehumidification systems. So, I mean, what has that 
been like? I mean, do you have vegetable growers who are asking for mechanical cooling and dehumidification systems? Or is this really driven by the cannabis industry? And just kind of what do you think about all that? Yeah, when we, well, you know, over the years we've had, we've done, we do a lot of institutional big pharma and and research greenhouses uh, where uh, in universities, et cetera, where over the years we've been asked to do cooling dehumidification and all that. But it was always like, uh, you really want to do that? You know, you, uh, you know, we, we did a project at the University of Alaska where they wanted to have benches where they could grow tundra. So they had to have super oh my God. tables, you know, and and those kind of challenges would come up from time to time. It was never a real big piece of our business. But then, uh, you know, 2015, 16, uh, a lot of people were starting to, you know, legal cannabis was happening. They wanted to build. Uh, I, I feel like the enlightened people are saying, I'm going to do a light deprivation greenhouse instead of an indoor in this hostile climate. And so people started coming to us. And that's where I think our industry was somewhat flat footed. But, you know, we cut our teeth on a few projects where we uh, didn't really know our way around it. The, you know, there's just there's not a lot of reference data. It's, it's a fairly new area of engineering uh, in terms of doing the, you know, that's that explains your presence, really. There's just so much still being learned and standards that need to be in place that haven't yet been. Uh, but, uh, you know, our company you know took the challenge in those years. It was driven by cannabis because they are the crop that had the uh, the value and uh, the desire to invest in uh, in systems that could really provide those systems. But it's allowed us to really pivot toward now the growth of CEA. And yeah, there are a lot of vegetable growers that are planting their flag in uh, humid, nasty environments, and they need to have. Uh, the same tech. And so it's it's been a really good thing for us because we really got a deep competency in how to do this. You know, I mean, early on when we started getting calls from people saying we'd like to air condition this greenhouse in Chicago, and it is extremely expensive. People were still investing in it. And since then, um, you know, it's like, do you really want to air condition a box that lets light in? Really? But they do. And And so we've developed tools and now we've kind of really decoded it to where we've finally gotten to a point where what used to seem like crazy numbers, like $100, $125 a square foot, which is what it kind of was. And now we're, we're finally get it down. It's, it's still crazy high. I mean, we, we came from being a heating company that would sell systems for $6, $7 a square foot. And now we're in this realm where people are investing more like 40 or 50 or $60 a square foot. So it's, it's still very expensive, but it's worth it. I mean, what is driving the desire to have air conditioned greenhouses? Um, I mean, you know, when I was a PhD student, I mean, there are, you know, evaporatively cooled greenhouses at North Carolina state and, at you know, university of Georgia and Florida, you know, in these humid, locations and they were venting and evaporatively cooling. And I remember asking, you know, my, um, my major advisor, Gene Giacomelli, you know, like, what's the point of evaporative cooling, you know, in, in a, in a state like that. And he said, well, if you could just get one degree lower, that's better than nothing. And so, you know, I mean, that attitude of, you know, something's better than nothing and we can still get by with these systems. It's not going to be perfect. And and I do remember, right, like some greenhouses would pack up for the summer, right? And 
give their give their employees a vacation and then come back, right? And they didn't want to compete anyway with the the field tomato market coming out of California or Florida. So they're like, okay, you know, like we're going to pack up and we're going to make our money in the winter anyway. What has changed? I mean, why isn't evaporative cooling and ventilation enough anymore? I think I could answer that in one word, humidity. Uh, With air conditioning uh, comes the opportunity for humidity control. And uh, where evaporative pads provide a temperature benefit they don't necessarily provide a humidity benefit to some crops and if the crop is uh, needing to be grown in a critical humidity then people are willing to pay for a solution that will help control that yeah and i think that large especially driven by vegetable growers that want to do year-round production so they can fulfill the skews that they have at the various markets that they're selling through they realize they can't shut down if they want to keep that. I mean, basically what they're, yeah. I mean, it's all about, it's not even about the product. It's about the spot on the shelf. That's yep. what they're, that's what they're buying. That's what they're, that's, that's their trade. And they also, the economy of scale of building greenhouses in general is less than a traditional uh, clad building that doesn't admit light. And so, you know, the, the, the benefit of, having a light emitting structure does come at the cost of having then to either bring the temperature down or modify the humidity for a healthy leafy green crop or a cannabis crop or whatever. So, you know, we're tool makers. We don't tell people exactly what they should do, but we can tell you that um, the cost of operation of a greenhouse, even mechanically controlled or, you know, dehumidified and and cooled uh, makes sense in the long run. Long run being five years, 10 years, 20 years. I think, I think you know, sustainability is going to be a thing forever. The energy footprint of indoor cultivation has to, has to be uh, mindful of it. So, you know, if you, if you're not having to put as much supplemental light, cause you're getting the light, mm. um, you know, so I think it's a, it's a forever sustainable thing. Now, I mean, you guys were, uh, going back to the the heating um, system, Thad, you said, you know, one word you can answer that question, which is humidity. I mean, raising the temperature of the greenhouse, right, um, with your heating system, uh, uh, you know, automatically reduces at least the relative humidity, if not the total moisture content of the greenhouse. Is that a strategy that you see employed very often or a lot or little? It's a great question, and that's kind of touching on the the comment of uh, VPD too. Yeah, the, the the growers always have ideal set points that they wish to grow to, and they don't always understand the economical impacts of those decisions. And one way to to mitigate that decision is to keep your VPD intact, but change the the, the coupled temperature and humidity set points to meet that VPD, but maybe you raise it to make the system a little more affordable. And, you know, again, Jim said we're tool makers. Uh, I agree. There are some kind of upper boundaries for each type of crop that the growers feel are, are limits that they don't like to exceed. But what we typically see is uh, on the front end, they uh, growers typically want aggressive or the best ideal set points. And then what we usually see in practice uh, afterwards 
is uh, usually more economically balanced where they may be willing to forego on temperature and humidity without sacrificing BPD. So, and you know, I, I'd add to that. I, we we sell mechanical systems for air conditioning and cooling that, and we we really don't want people to use them, if that makes any sense. Like, <laughs> we, yeah, we, and buy all this stuff, but only use it when you really, really have to. Exactly. And that, that kind of touches on um, the people that operate greenhouses are. If there's one downside about having a greenhouse versus an indoor facility is that the the mindset of the cultivator really needs to have a, be steeped in operating a greenhouse because dehumidification in a greenhouse can be done the traditional way where you heat the space and crack the vents. And then and only then when you get to a point where there's no return on it, should you shut down and use the mechanical system that costs a lot to operate. So, you know, that. There, there's always walking a fine line there and the control systems can help, but having a qualified greenhouse oriented cultivator can never, never be undervalued. And we see it over and over again when people come from the indoor space where they have so much control and they try to operate a greenhouse, uh, it's, it's, uh, they have to cut their teeth for a while before they finally get, they're partnered up with a control system that's partnered up with all these apparatus that can vent or move air, et cetera, et cetera, using those appropriately really can spell success or not. It's so, like they're two different types of cars. They need two different types of drivers and you have to learn each system if you flip over. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the big things I, I, one of the big differences I see, I mean, everyone always focuses on the lights um, with the difference between indoor and greenhouse. But from my perspective, one of the big differences I see is the use of ventilation uh, and outside air and, you know, greenhouse, we're always using the outside air, right? I mean, that is our source of cooling or venting out, you know, of humidity control where indoor we, I find a lot of growers are really afraid of the outside. Uh, yeah. You know, they don't want to bring anything in, you know, they think that's where, you know, the mold spores are going to come from or, you know, bad things are going to happen if they let outside air in. Um, and, and a trend that I'm really uh, happy to see is that more indoor growers are realizing that maybe there are actually some benefits to using outside air. And Jim, it was your comment that made me think of this, where we want you to ventilate and use evaporative cooling and do the traditional methods as much as possible, and then seal it up and mechanically cool and dehumidify when you absolutely need to. The same idea could be true for an indoor farm is let's ventilate, right? Let's use the outside air as much as possible and then turn on the compressors, right? Then turn on the mechanical cooling system or you know, use it to assist with the cooling and dehumidification, especially if you're in a Northern climate or a really dry climate, there's, there could be advantages, energy advantages there. And there should be. Yeah. 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 You know, speaking of that, I mean, do you guys see any other sort of technological spillovers say from indoor farms to greenhouses or even vice versa? I mean, do you guys, you know, sell your radiant heating systems to, indoor growers and we're seeing a little uptick since uh, the uh, you know led lights becoming uh, prevalent 
that their uh, their indoor cultivators are finding that their media temperatures aren't what they were when they had HPS, you know. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the more technical growers that monitor such things and understand that uh, a big driver of the plant's metabolism is what the media temperature is. And so we're seeing for the first time ever, like people actually wanting to put some, you know, in bench or on bench type of microclimate heating for root zone in the space indoors. Um, so that's that's kind of an interesting development. Other things that are spilling over, I guess, you know, just I, I think there's people that are attempting to use like the multi-layer benches in greenhouses, which I think that might be fraught with all kinds of challenges. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. What I about think, LED lighting in a greenhouse? Are you proponents for that or absolutely. skeptical? Yeah, no, you are. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think it's finally here. You know, it's it's just taken a while. It wasn't that long ago when everybody said, that's just around the corner, but, you know, you don't get the yields and you don't get the... And and now it seems like that's partly through, you know, uh, local municipalities putting, you know, the clamp down on how much wattage gets used. But, you know, LEDs here for, for good and it's it's here for good in greenhouses, too. I guess one other thing just to touch on your previous issue or point, and I'm not a, you know, I'm no plant scientist, but, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, there are some people who say that the value of natural light in regards to the crop, there's there's some benefit there. There might be some benefits to having that spectrum available, which you you know it's hard to mimic with with lighting, right? Some far red, some UV, yeah, kind of the edges of our typical par right. seem to have benefits to certain crops for sure. So you know, in terms of of heating systems, you know, I I kind of think that of of a few different ways that we can heat the greenhouse. First is, you know solar radiation, (laughs) solar energy. Uh, Two is, you know, radiant heat from, you know, a system like what you guys provide. There's also forced air and unit heaters, you know, under bench, overhead, right? I mean, it comes in a million different varieties. Can you kind of describe the benefits or the pros and cons of each of those types of systems? I mean, you guys don't sell unit heaters, right? We do. You do? Okay. And, and generally, you know, selling a unit heater to a grower isn't our favorite thing. Uh, they're generally there as either a backup means if the budget is is relatively tight and they can't afford like a redundant boiler system or the crop value isn't that, you know, high or they just have occasional snow that they might need to, you know, get rid of. But it does happen. But unit heaters are, you know, we think that they're, they're the worst way to heat a greenhouse. I mean, you're, you're you know, just turning it into air that wants to rise and scrub across the glazing and create more heat loss. And it's kind of, you know, you don't see them in really mature and sophisticated horticulture environments. Like you won't see unit heaters in the Westlands of Holland or, you know, much of Canada, you, you won't see them, but they're, they're kind of an American thing. You know, you just yeah. don't see them that much. You see people in hot water systems. You know, we see the greenhouse as kind of a layer cake. And so, you know, we, we, in a, in a perfect scenario, you know, we would provide some means of media temperature control, regardless of the crop is, and then also put another layer in to do some convection for around the plant. And then another layer, if necessary for humidity control or snow melting and all those in, in the sense of biotherm, we have them all communicate to a heat wa- a hot water source and you know, the, those systems are very quick and responsive. And we try to make systems that are in lockstep with the low mass nature of the structure. 
because the structures change so quickly. So a lot of times we're replacing old high mass equipment or what we call high mass, like old fashioned, like locomotive looking boilers that are, you know, high mass, a lot of volume of water, a lot of steel and iron. We, we replace a lot of those systems because the demand type boilers that are now very prevalent make a lot more sense because they're like on demand and they can provide the various levels of hot water we might need for the bottom heat system or the perimeter or convective uh, space around the plants. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, and a, a lot of our work has shown that if you modify the temperature of the plants themselves, there's a cocoon kind of a, an envelope of heat. That's really what matters to the plant right around the plant zone, the root zone gets warm and re-radiates some energy up into the plant. So if you take an infrared picture of a bench heated system, uh, you'll see a cluster of energy around the plant zones. And uh, for a lot of crops, they, the air temperature above the space where you know, a unit heater would have it be the same temperature everywhere might be 10, 15 degrees cooler. And it really doesn't affect plant growth. And so it saves a lot of energy. Yeah. So with that in mind, would you, if if you had to choose where to put your heating system, would your initial recommendation be at the root zone or under canopy? I think that's where the most uh, meat on the bone is for growers to gain an edge is to to get the media temperature controlled first. That's, that's super important for most every crop. Mm-hmm. Would you make the same recommendation for cooling? Interesting. <laughs> interesting you know, that, yeah <laughs> well, it's interesting because you know that the it, then you have condensation you have to deal with you know right running chilled water through there so but uh you know yeah i would believe that i think that and honestly on some of the indoor growing places uh where they have too high a media temperature that would be a very appropriate way to control that microclimate by reversing it and running chilled water through the system yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think as long as you don't hit dew point, right? Or if you do hit dew point, you better have a method of you know mitigating whatever moisture drops out of your piping. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Have you ever used your radiant heating system with cold water, uh, chilled water, as opposed to hot water? Absolutely, we have. Yeah, several. We have some. Well, one I alluded to earlier was the University of Alaska, where we ran chilled water in their benches so they could keep crazy low media temperatures to, to cultivate, you know, tundra materials. We we used to have a division of our company that we're actually producing one of the systems right now for golf courses where we did a system, we do a system called turf temp, where we modify the media temperature of golf greens and tee boxes. And we've done them, uh, I believe in Tucson, we have one that's a refrigerated green where there's a big chiller sitting off to the side in an enclosure and, and cooling the media temperatures so they can grow bent grass and bright sun. Um, so yeah, we've, wow. we've, done, we've done those. We've done, you know, cooled uh, panels for floors and, and for benches, you know, it costs a lot more to make chilled water than hot water. Mm-hmm. So that's always kind of a limiting factor. And then there is, you know, the point where you in, in a greenhouse, if, and I honestly believe like you have a big slab floor in a greenhouse, let's bring that temperature down you know, because that's collecting so much of the solar gain. Um, right. But, you know, you just have to be aware of what this, the, the the dew points are. And if you do make water, you got to figure out where it's going to go. Yep. Yep. Where, where do you see the greatest need for 
development in greenhouse technology? Well, I, an earlier point was that we're always fighting the sun on the cooling and dehumidification systems, especially cooling. So I'd really love to see, I think it's a real opportunity for the greenhouse manufacturers to have, uh, you know, a, an elegant way to shade the structure from above. There are systems out there, but uh, most of the manufacturers kind of shy away from them because they seem to be fraught with a lot of maintenance and exposure, you know, to, you know, failure of the curtain systems and all that. But we'd love to see that. What about the envelope and the glazing itself? Have you been following any of the new developments uh, that's been happening there? I I do. And it's another thing that I think is just around the corner. Are you talking about the like photovoltaic integration? Yeah, there's or, photovoltaic integration. There's spectral. Yeah, like, oh, I don't, what do you call them? Glazings that are uh, spectral selective. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I think it's amazing. Our company's been involved a little bit with uh, UbiGrow, Ubi I think is a company. Okay. Um, and, you know, the results that come back from being able to modify what would normally be wasted light is really amazing. And I think that, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of that. That's like a, a passive way to make greenhouses even more effective by modifying the spectrum of the light that comes in in an automatic mm-hmm. way. I think that's that's amazing. Yeah. And, and to block out some of those hot waves, right? Some of that near infrared or infrared light and then let in the light yeah. uh, <laughs> and not let in the heat. I, it seems really beneficial, at least in, in hot climates. Maybe right. you don't want to apply that in a cold climate or, or maybe there is a benefit to that in a cold climate. Could be. Mm-hmm. Could be. Is there, is there technology that you guys see being used in a greenhouse that maybe is questionable and, and by questionable i mean like you guys didn't really need to use that or you could have done something else instead maybe there maybe there's an operational practice instead that could have have been uh implemented rather than a, a technology or do you walk into a greenhouse and you're like oh man they could really use this in their greenhouse Oh, we see that all the time. <laughs> yeah. What's the yeah. number one thing that is missing from most greenhouses you walk into? I think, I don't know, Thad, you can help me out. Maybe uh, adequate and appropriate air circulation. That's a good we one. see that a lot, you know, where they're, they're, they have, you know, eddies that don't get moved around in corners, et cetera. So, you know, well-engineered uh, air system movement. I don't know. I mean, we see... You know, especially with the overinvestment in some of the CEA spaces, mechanization. I mean, I think there's an appropriate mechanization automation picture, but I think sometimes it becomes more for stuff that doesn't really pay for itself. You know. Yeah, I think um, that. So the the two things that I usually see going into greenhouses that stand out are definitely airflow, not not just maybe a lack of airflow, but proper airflow design to where uh, you, you maybe don't have enough vertical airflow fans. Uh, you just put in what you could, what you could get or, or your uh, horizontal airflow system wasn't set up correctly to get the stirring effect that you need in the upper part of your greenhouse to create that high pressure system, which imparts a vertical flow since the lower part of your greenhouse would be low pressure and which is not necessarily something you can feel, but you can see in a smoke test. 
so if that upper echelon doesn't have the right patterns of uh, HAF or the right sizing, it's not going to stir properly. So it'll look great, but it may not be doing anything for you. Mm. Uh, the, the other one was just to, that uh, sometimes you, you put in quick and easy tech and the benefit is cost and the risk is that uh, maintaining all of that tech puts uh, the mm. maintenance staff into your greenhouse around your crops and bringing that as much as possible outside of that growing space is going to minimize all those vectors that can harm plants. Right. So, That's, for example, yeah. putting unit heaters in everywhere might sound great, but if you have an acre, there's going to be so many of them that oh you're going to have God. a permanently employed person fixing those things, including a, a, a very impressive distribution network of gas lines and heavier heavier electrical uh, wiring. So uh, that that just you're inviting other people into the space that, you, you know, that's that's one of the neat things about greenhouses. Sometimes you can walk into an acre and there's no one there. Yeah. <laughs> Empty. If you did that any in any other space, uh, th there'd be a lot more uh, involvement or people. But that's what you want to do is keep keep the risk factors out. Yeah. I so many things to say to what what the points you just made that last point i mean we've we have visited you know hector great greenhouses right like maybe potted plants and ornamentals and there's one guy right managing that entire greenhouse right. complex and then sometimes we walk into these high-tech new greenhouses with new growers right who are not as experienced and there might be four people per bay I mean, it's just insanity. And it's like they're com competing with each other or fighting with each other. They're all making different decisions or they're all, you know, siloed working on managing different equipment and different systems and different parts of the growing operation. And it's just like you look at this one guy that's been doing this for 40 years. And then, you know, these 40 guys that have been doing it for one year, you know, like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, and then they might be they might be even hand watering, which I think. Is, yeah yeah it's like wow you know it, it is wow it is That's... wow on that on the air distribution comment you know i think you brought up a really good exercise that any grower could do right now which is to do a smoke test right i mean those smoke generators are are they even a hundred bucks i mean they're really cheap and run those to see how the circulation of air is moving in your greenhouse i've walked into greenhouses where there i mean you know, a, a 2,000 or 3,000 square foot greenhouse where there are like 20 HAF fans all pointing in different directions and at each other and different angles. And you're just like, what is that supposed to be doing? <laughs> They're all fighting with each other. And, you know, a very, I don't know if it's an easy fix, but it's an easy, you know, issue to identify when you walk into a greenhouse like that. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on, you know, that sort of HAF fan circulation versus this trend that we're starting to see with more under bench airflow? Do you see a benefit to one or the other? One one point that I'd like to make, though, cautionary is sure. that a lot of the smoke tests or smoke bombs for you know, looking at your airflows are not food grade. So you, Good point. You know, so someone's got to be careful before they go bomb their lettuce greenhouse with that. I'm not sure there is one. I think that we were with a grower last week that wishes they could do it, but they can't find a smoke bomb that can do it mm. that's for their, uh, their crop. Got it. I think. Use uh, balloons. There you go. 
<laughs> Watch the balloon just circle the greenhouse. Hopefully. Maybe we, we need a side business, Nadia. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Thad and I can both talk at length about, you know, there's been, especially for the cannabis folks that have such a dense canopy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, it's been, uh, it's a real struggle uh, for them. And it's become really, really a, a underlying point that they really want, you know, the word is they want to see their plants dance. And it's very difficult to do that with, if you're all of your air circulation is either HAF, even VAF doesn't really necessarily break that canopy up. And that's where you start getting the problems. Um, so I'd say, and Thad, you can, you can chime in on this and, and verify what I'm saying, but I'd say the last couple of years, we've seen much more emphasis on bench tops that aren't solid so that, that airflow can penetrate up through the plants and a whole lot more emphasis on placing a means of moving air up through the crop from below to top in our systems. Would you, would you agree with that? that? Yeah, totally. And what you said, plant canopy, that's the key. Uh, and a lot of uh, the newer growers may have such a dense canopy that HAF can't cut through it at all. And VAF depends on how high your gutter is. Uh, and the solution to all that is to bring that quality of air that you want underneath the canopy as well as make sure there's mixing overhead and using you know the polyduct systems or things like it is very beneficial do you guys ever see just like ceiling fans being used in greenhouses yep yeah (laughs) have you seen those be used successfully i think they should explore it and i'd like to see a smoke test of how well those work there's those beautiful ones like big ass fans and these other ones that are out there yep. with like ec motors on them that you know literally are like 10 feet across i've, I've seen them mostly in the garden centers and uh, not necessarily in that many of the the production facilities but i think that it's a it's a strong possibility they'd be a good way with less points of failure and just a few fans you could probably circulate mm. the whole greenhouse vertically no. Yeah, we, we usually see, you know, uh, manufacturers can provide airflow profiles to show you what kind of velocity gradients you're getting from the fan underneath it. And each fan type, uh, whether it's an open blade or it's got some kind of shroud associated with it, will have a different type of throw pattern. And, it, you know, that throw pattern is going to be unique to each greenhouse uh all the dimensions of your room. So those fans I'm, I'm, I'm sure have an advantage. It's just, I think maybe the, that's an area where the fan industry could help the greenhouse industry by providing a lot more documentation to show uh, that velocity pattern their fans create. So some, it would be easier to make those decisions of what would be more appropriate. I 100% agree with that. We've struggled with indoor farms. Um, you know, we have to specify, you know, with indoor farms, when we're the engineer of record or we're putting together, you know, detailed design plans, you know, grower, we're picking fans, um, HAF fans or ventilation fans, right? Or, or you know, ceiling fans. And what has been really, you know, and, and usually we can very easily find with commercial or fans, 
you can find information about CFM velocity, mm -hmm. static, you know, the, right. the flow at different static pressures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like there's so many different points that help us select the right fan. But when it comes to agriculture fans, right, a lot of those data points are missing. And all it says is like, you know, I'll just use the example of a ventilation fan. Oh, this exhaust fan is 24,000 CFM at zero inches of static pressure. Well, who the hell cares about zero inches of static right. pressure? I gotta, right. I gotta pull this air, you know, 130 feet across a greenhouse with all these plants through a cooling pad, through an insect screen, through a damper, you know, like, I don't care about that number. Like, why aren't we labeling or, you know, describing these fans and their full performance? Right. It's a uh, fans have a curve and they have a flow pattern and not everybody provides that. Sometimes they just provide a couple points on that curve or no flow pattern. Right. And yeah. that doesn't like you're saying that doesn't help us at all. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's it's like now, you know, when I'm talking to people who are going to design or build a greenhouse and when we, we a lot of times we're peer reviewing um, other you know, greenhouse suppliers or manufacturers, um, their work. And it's like, oh, you know, like we picked, I don't know, you know, eight twenty four thousand CFM fans. And that's what's going to provide 60 air changes per hour. And and I read that and I yeah, at twenty four thousand CFM for those eight fans, that is one air that is six air changes per hour. But if we added up all the static pressure, right, which we try to do when we can, um, all of a sudden it's, you know, 16,000 CFM. And you're like, this isn't 60 air changes. This is 35 air changes. I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that it's, it's necessarily a deceptive thing. I just think it's a not knowing thing and we don't have any other information to report. Well, there didn't used to be insect screens and there didn't used to be a lot of things that now fans are, have, you know, and so I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of the legacy nature of some of our industry that should be improved, I think, you know, I mean, it used to be when I started out that 70 to 80% of the investment in the greenhouse was the, you know, was the greenhouse and not, not the stuff inside. Mm. You know, they might have a, a jet fan and a uni heater. Uh, and now it's completely, you know, upside down. Like all the stuff we do generally costs more than the structure, all the stuff yeah. inside, all the toys to modify the environment, all the mechanization and everything else. That's 80 to 90% sometimes even of the budget and the structure, the edifice is, you know, my minor part. But yeah, I think that we need to step up because of having that data is key, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. For engineers. Why, why aren't variable speed fans the industry norm yet why do i still see single stage or two stage fans <laughs> again you know our company is only doing ec motor variable speed fans with smart Thank motors you. yeah we believe that it's just the only way to respect the sustainability of it and we're already you know we're asking people to do a premium investment to do the proper climate control system because we believe that you're either a buyer or you're an investor. And if you're trying to invest in your crop, that's the key number one thing is to do that. And, you know, keeping the footprint down as much as possible. That And, and air movement so huge in greenhouses that to not do that, I think is, is yeah, it's absurd. It's absurd. And our solutions out there, they're just not necessarily actively marketed. And, you know, short of 
upsetting the people that I'm going to see in April at the NGMA uh, <laughs> that, that specify a lot of those. Yeah, I'll stop there because I really believe yeah. that, that they should. I do too. I do too. And, and not just, you know, in terms of, you know, efficiency and sustainability, because I mean, a fan operating at 60% instead of a hundred percent is going to be a lot more efficient on that fan curve. Mm-hmm. And right. That's number one, but also number two, it just gives you better management over the environment, right? Like if you want to just sort of burp your greenhouse of the humidity that's built up overnight, why do I need to turn on that one twenty-four thousand CFM fan for two minutes that has some dead band that says it has to stay on for a certain amount of time. And now it's too dry and cold, right? Now I have to overheat my greenhouse to make up for it. If I could just turn on that fan to like 20% for three minutes, right? I mean, not only did I save energy and save the surge of demand power, but I also managed my climate a lot better. Yeah. And your equipment lasts longer. It's a, it's, yeah, it's exactly. Between, yeah. It's like driving to the store 100 miles an hour each way or just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to hit the brakes, right? And slam on your brakes. Yep. So while we're talking about efficiency, just briefly, I mean, what are some tips that you would have for growers to improve the efficiency of their operation? I think an assessment of uh, what their energy footprint is, looking at um, like, you know, we, we see all the time you go out to bedding plant producers that have wide open sidewalls and all their HAF fans are just running 24 seven, you know, things like that. Low hanging fruit is everywhere in greenhouses, facilities and having mm. either energy audits done or, you know, having someone who's a niche oriented engineer to come look, you know, our company offers what we call it um, an energy assessment program where we just basically look at their we try to benchmark their uh, efficiency with regard to converting fuel to useful heat is a, is a good step. There's a tremendous uh, uh, opportunity, I think, for people to improve on on most of the installed base of greenhouses uh, in our marketplace by, you know, first knowing what they're doing, maintaining equipment. I mean, a lot of the stuff is, you know, a checklist you can see in any greenhouse magazine, every approach to a heating season. <coughs> we see a lot of, you know, unadjusted belts on exhaust fans. We see a lot of water waste. We see inefficient heating solutions, inefficient, you know, maintenance of evap pads. There's uh, greenhouses are, are, are maintenance heavy. That's for sure. There's a lot of water at play. There's a lot of humidity and all that. So, you know, keeping things in tune is, is a big task. Thermal screens are, you know, a big deal. Most people, sh- you know, a lot of people don't have them. They should have them. What about you, Even- Fab? I, I, I think the, the energy assessment is really critical because it, just looking at uh, how you're converting your electricity and fuel to usable BTUs for uh, heating, cooling, whatever's needed, you know, that every greenhouse has an energy footprint based on the set points they're trying to achieve. And you can benchmark the fuel usage based on that footprint. And that kind of gives you a gross idea of the site efficiency and that alone can tell you if they're in the right lane or not for uh, the tech they're using or or sometimes it's just growing practices and they just need to modify that so knowing how you're using your energy is critical 
Yeah, I, I, I like that you said, you know, doing an energy assessment, or, you know, we might call it an energy audit. I think a lot of times when I walk into existing greenhouses, there's a lot of low hanging fruit, you know, that could make a really big difference. It's not even it's, it's not not major retrofits. It's not even equipment replacements. It's just you know, maybe just sealing things up or cleaning the evaporative cooling pad. Or I really like, Jim, your example of the belts and tightening them or replacing them. You know, how many of them have you seen where they're like hanging by a thread, literally, and, and just doing some of that simple maintenance can go a long way for sure. Cleaning the screens, right? I mean, that have been out and they're like all dusty mm -hmm. and you can't even see through them. I mean, they're... I, they're not just blocking thrips; they're blocking air at that yeah. point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, you know, we see a lot of like on the just on the heating side that you know is kind of our our original competency as a company. We still see, believe it or not, people running steam systems. Um, wow. Yeah, and you know, there's I can you know there's acres out there that still exist, and almost to a man, every time that we get our hands on their energy bills and look at their envelope and look at the temperatures they're growing at and their seasonal production, et cetera, it's almost always in the 40 to 45% efficiency range. And in this day and age, wow, system should be, you know, and we're talking about overall efficiency, but now we have these beautiful 99% condensing boilers. Mm. We have these low mass distribution systems that are on demand. So you're not wasting energy, keeping pressure and and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's just, they're familiar with the equipment and they, you know, their dad had it or their grandfather had it and they're still running it. And it, it's just got to dig into the bottom line. It's and the paybacks are, are pretty astounding, you know? So uh, yeah, being aware of what you're doing with anything that makes a meter spin is probably one of the biggest things. And then other things like utilization of area within the space um, ah, that's you know, a good one. If you're going to condition a space and you're only growing in sixty percent of it, that you know that that just is begging for for some ideas like rolling benches or something to to maximize the actual condition or the the production in a conditioned space so that you know the dollars you're spending go toward more crops. So, I, have you seen the? What about the opposite? Have you ever seen a greenhouse that's utilizing too much of the space? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are, uh, you know, we, we do see sometimes in places where they may have, you know, hanging baskets above a crop and they're not going yeah. to penetrate through. We've seen, you know, in the cannabis world, maybe too dense of a, a crop spacing for, mm -hmm. you know, for air movement and disease prevention. So yeah, yeah. we've yeah. seen people try to pack too much in. Since you guys are heating guys, I'm really curious, have you thought about heat pumps for heating? Have you ever specified heat pumps? Absolutely. And, and, you know, there are, we just won a project uh, recently, a big CEA vegetable project because we optimized the design of the system to use low grade warm water uh, instead of, you know, normal boiler grade, you know, nice. 200 degree Fahrenheit water. So we absolutely believe that that is the way, especially with electrification happening in a lot of, you know, municipalities yep. where, you know, we just can't be burning fuels. So um, it's, it's, it's a challenge because we're not in, you know, Europe where, uh, you know, the decatherm price is, you know, 15, <laughs> 15 X what we're paying. So it's many times it's hard to make the economic case for it, but we try to put the infrastructure in 
as much as possible so that growers have a migration path to other means, whether it's solar, whether it's heat pumps, low-grade geothermal, whatever. We try to um, we try to specialize in quick demand systems that are very low mass, low volume, and use the minimum water temperature as possible to condition the space. And in a lot of cases, that gives people you know the ability to pivot to heat pumps uh, and that. But it's uh, it is a higher capex to start with, and unless your energy you know KW rate is you know at the appropriate level, it's it's sometimes a tough ROI. And, you know, we're not getting a lot of help from subsidies on that. So, uh, but, you know, we do a lot of true, I mean, and go to the Westlands in Holland and you're going to see a lot of people moving away from uh, straight boiler power to, uh, to heat pumps. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it's a different, different world there because of the cost of energy and operation and, and all, but we, we believe firmly that that is the future. Yeah, I've been curious about that for a while. You, you made the comment about electrification. You know, I, I'll tack on to that decarbonization and moving away from gas systems. I loathed the, the day that I don't have a gas stove to cook on. But, you know, that aside, you know, I immediately think of greenhouses. What are greenhouses going to do without gas to heat them? So I'm really encouraged to hear that you're already looking at heat pumps as an alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're always in our back pocket and we'll bring them out to show people like, okay, you know, if you buy this system now, uh, it's going to be this much. You can do it with high efficiency boilers that comply with the emission standards, a low end out mm-hmm. and all that. And they almost always go toward that, but, you know, they, but they do have the equipment and the distribution and the infrastructure inside to pivot when it's appropriate. And when, you know, regulate or economics makes sense. So that's a really good segue because I want to ask you guys about how you predict California's new energy code is going to affect the greenhouse industry. Obviously, it's going to affect us first here in California, but what's the future of this? Yeah, uh, you're probably way more steeped in what's going on, but you know, from what I understand from you know being at the RII meeting, it's a very scary time for permitting and, and, you know, what, what are the glazings going to be? It, it, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, it's uh, we don't have a big enough voice as an industry to make them understand. Right. Yeah. Is there a technology, a greenhouse technology that you wish they may have targeted even before the greenhouse envelope that would be a more low hanging fruit? I, I wish statewide they'd reinforce every greenhouse to recirculate their water and not waste mm-hmm. any water. That would be key to me, I think, especially in California where, we, you know, we still see a ton of drain to waste in yeah. greenhouses. And, you know, there's there's methodologies to avoid that. I think that that should be something they regulate much more than, than this. Um, yeah. So what is the future of greenhouse technology? I think we're going to see uh, a lot more emphasis on integration with the um, you know, it used to be, you know, you build the build the building and the greenhouse guy, builder, manufacturer would just put the building up and then it's up to everybody else to try to uh, put the system. But the systems inside going forward are becoming a lot more elaborate so that we can get optimized production. So, you know, making making it a, a whole a holistic thing, mm. I think, is uh, is a real key to the future. I, I'm I'm a big believer that. Um, 
I mean, I, maybe you can educate us if we can go back for a second. I mean, what what's going to happen if someone wants to build like a giant double poly vegetable greenhouse in, in the state? Is that is that going to be permitted? My understanding is that it will be um, as long as it's double layer or triple layer. Um, and and they say a, a, a conditioned, right, a space conditioned greenhouse. The challenge is that they haven't defined what that means. Right. And, and I think what what and I have asked this question, the, the way that it's being interpreted right now by the people who at least who are answering my question is that it means it's air conditioned. So mechanically cooled um, or heated, but they're not necessarily considering evaporative cooling or ventilation as space conditioning. Um, so, you know, heated. Obviously, I mean, we want to be able to heat our greenhouse. So that's, I mean, going to be all greenhouses for the most part. Um, and, uh, but they haven't really well defined that. And I also feel like they kind of punted a little bit because they said it has to be double or triple layer. They didn't say what type of material, right? But then it says, go check this other section of the code for the envelope requirements. Well, that other section of the code doesn't have greenhouses specifically. So in my mind, <laughs> everybody listening here, right, and wants to know what it is in my mind, is that the only cover, the only glazing that actually pertains is glass, because that's the only one that is described in, you know, California's code elsewhere. They don't talk about polyethylene or polycarbonate. So... To me, that is, you know, that is our opportunity to use double polyethylene filled with air, right? Twin wall polycarbonate, twin wall acrylic. Um, yes, double pane glass. But because there are no requirements for those plastic type of materials, what are they going to point to? I don't know. So um, there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions other than me about what these envelope requirements mean. It does sound like um, the Energy Commission is listening and there might be some modifications to the code, at least better definitions to the code section to clarify what they're talking about. Um, so I don't think that this is necessarily set in stone. I think it's going to take us, right, the collective us and the NGMA, um, and this is probably something we should all be talking about in April together, is yes. what is our collective <laughs> response to this. Um, and then people submitting for permit, trying to fill out the forms, right? And what are people going to be submitting? Because obviously, if you're only talking about glass, I mean, that's, you know, 90% of the industry is tanked, right? I mean, not tanked, but it's just, it's really impactful, too it's impactful. So yeah, the engineering, the cost, the capex is is oh is my god over the top. It's not. It's going to put a lot of people, you know, away from building. Right, um, and we should not have glass in California necessarily. And we got the seismic issues too, you know. So right. Yeah, yeah. I I, I truly hope that that we can get together as an industry and get it. But it's you know you'll hear you've been to NGMA. You know that everybody's kind of I know at their wits end with how. Uh, how small we are and how big that thing is and how hard it's, it is to make an impact and make them move the needle. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm hopeful um, that we can have a, a working group uh, this spring and 
may have this collective analysis or letter or, you know, like some next steps, like how do we respond to this? Um, that we'll nominate you as chair. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Can you be my co-chair? <laughs> or I'll find an envelope person to be my co-chair. There you go. Um, yeah. So, uh, but with that in mind, right. I mean, that's the other thing is that with some of these new glazing materials, uh, that are coming out, I don't know that they're all necessarily double layer. Um, I think some of them are, but you know, there are some energy benefits to those materials. And so we don't want to discount them, right. We don't want to leave them out just because they don't meet this specific requirement. I don't think. So there's probably going to be some exceptions written in uh, to the code. I'm guessing. Yeah. That's my crystal ball, I guess. It's got to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you the last question for both of you. What do plants crave from technology? I, you know, like a really simple answer is that plants evolved over millennia in a certain environment and Many times the answer to what they crave is looking at how they evolve because nature's smart and trying to create, uh, you know, with equipment, et cetera, you know, plants that are from uh, tropical environs grown in northern climates, trying to create and mimic the place that they grew up might be, you know, a simple answer as far as, uh, but, you know, they, I feel that they, they, they crave the right media temperature they crave the right amount of water they crave oxygen they crave many of them crave co2 uh, which we do a lot of the right light yeah i think those are those are the things that they're asking i think we have the tools for all those what you got any other ideas Thad? electrolytes yes good job you're only the third guest guest who has answered that wanna, question correctly? I didn't want to. I'm just we, kidding. We know where you lifted the logo. <laughs> <laughs> but I did say technology. I don't know. Is electrolytes a technology? <laughs> no, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you. You know the. I think what plants crave from tech is is you know matching the ideal environment with uh you know ultimately you want to do uh more with less to keep to be sustainable and you need to marry that to the right tech to give the plants the environment that they're most accustomed to growing in successfully so that, that it's kind of a yeah. it's a trade-off yeah I, that that all makes perfect sense to me they crave the the environment Right. The parameters, the grow parameters that they evolved to to need, to crave, to respond to, to grow in. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, if plants didn't know the technology existed, that's how mm. and that's how you know you're doing the right thing. Right. And I think, you know, Jim, I like that you have consistently said through this conversation that you provide tools. Right. And and technology is a tool to provide uh, those parameters to plants. All right, yeah. so I have a few rapid fire questions for you guys. So um, you could either take one at a time or you guys can both answer them. Uh, so they're meant to be quick, just, you know, one sentence, 
uh, responses. If you guys want to expand on anything, please do. Um, but they're meant to be rapid fire. All right. Are you guys ready? Yeah. I got my hand All in right. the buzzer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I Suspense could, I could, is killing me. I could, I could format these like Jeopardy questions. Okay. All right. In your, ex <laughs> in your experience, are greenhouse growers more plant focused or tech focused? Plant focused. Plant. Okay. Can we feed the world with greenhouses? Absolutely. Definitely. Okay. If you had to pick one thing, what tech should always be included in a greenhouse? Controls. Yeah, I would agree. Good controls. Okay. What tech could be skipped? Okay, now I need Jeopardy. Automation. Okay. Automation. Yeah. Thad, do you have a different a mechanization? Yeah. What's by the way? What's the difference between controls and automation? Well, controls to to us, I think you know, means uh, you know appropriate sensors and closed loop algorithms that look at and manipulate the environment and uh, exercise the equipment to make the appropriate environment. Automation to me is like robots and um, things like that. Okay. Okay. If you could tell a new greenhouse grower to do anything, what would it be? Pick a good site where they have the minimal number of uh, extraneous interferences like permits and inspections and make sure that they have adequate and quality water and good utility resources. Nice. Thad, anything to add to that? I can't beat that, especially yeah. on the utility side. Mm. Often overlooked. Um, or ignored. We'll figure that out later, right? Mm -hmm. um, all right. What have greenhouses taught you? <laughs> hmm. I mean, I have a huge appreciation for plant life uh, by, you know, spending, you know, 40 some years wandering through and, and you know, they're amazingly adaptable, uh, you know, things that are growing inside there. I don't know. Boy. They've taught me everything. They've, they've taken me around the world and shown me uh, that they really are, um, you know, they were invented for a reason and the, that uh, in our current, you know, world, they're, they are the future for food production and, and keeping us alive. It's kind of like the more for less thing again, uh, growing in an open field, you may be able to grow more square footage, but maybe your crops are much more at risk and greenhouses, you can get that tight output so you can get you can get kind of more production for less of the property and resources they've taught me to be very humble too <laughs> i bet me too yeah for sure just every you know I, I, you figured after all these years of doing this it would be really easy and i'd say that our, our job is even more challenging than it ever used to be mm -hmm. yeah i mean for such a simple structure um, it is a very complex system. It's an organism in a way. Yeah. And it's taught sure. me a lot of respect for uh, being pragmatic as well. There's a lot of different ways to get to a solution, but doing it kind of the most economically with the least uh, staff. It's taught me a lot about that. Mm. Nice. Well, guys, 
that is the end of uh, my questions. Uh, thank you so much. But it was really fun talking to you about greenhouses and the technology we use to, to manage them. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate your time spent with me today. Well, we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Great job. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for um, spending so much time with me. We'll let you know uh, when we are posting this. Cool. All fun. right. Thank Ditto. You. All right. Have a great rest of your